Let's turn together in God's Word to Genesis 22, just to refresh your memory and for the benefit of those who may be visiting with us. We are in the midst of a series of sermons on the life of Abraham. This will be the eighth. In our last sermon, we have come to the fulfillment of the promise in the birth of Isaac. Isaac has been born, and the promises have been there. Abraham, since we met him in Genesis 11, about 40 to 50 years have passed. We do not know the exact timing of this. It is somewhere between the weaning of Isaac um, and the death of Sarah in the next chapter, at which time Isaac is 37. So somewhere during that period of time, Isaac is likely in his late teens or early 20s when the events of Genesis 22 take place. This passage will be both the scripture reading and the text for this afternoon's sermon. Let's listen to the word of God. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together, and they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing. And have not withheld your son, your only son. In blessing I will bless you. and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. As the sand which is on the seashore. 
and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Huz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chezed, Hazel, Pildash, Jitlaf, and Bethuel, and Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Rumah, also bare Teba, Gahim, Thahash, and Mekah. There ends the reading of God's word. May God bless both the reading and the exposition of it. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, The calendar has tur- is turning this week to June. I suspect for many of our young people, at least in an ordinary year, and I am presuming it will be much the same even though the education calendar has been disrupted by COVID, June is thought of as a time of tests. You have studied the entire year and you come to the end of the, of the semester And it's customary to have a test or an exam. And why do you have tests? Well, part of it is for the teacher to know and confirm that you have learned the things you have studied. Part of the reason for the test is the teacher can't know for sure how much you've actually picked up. And so the test is a way for you to demonstrate your knowledge of what you have learned. But is it not also true that tests in themselves are part of the learning process? I suspect it would be the relatively exceptional student who would go through studying for an exam and would not find in their notes in the course of studying things that they had not fully understood before. And by the process of going through and studying, they would learn new things. Tests are a means of learning. Well, our passage this afternoon is about a test. In fact, as we began reading in Genesis 22, it was made very explicit and very clear, isn't it? After these things, God tested Abraham, the passage says. So why did God test Abraham? Did God not know whether or not Abraham had learned the lessons of his life? Well, we know that's not true. God's omnipotent. God's omniscient. God knows everything. God did not need this test to discover whether or not Abraham loved him or believed him. God already knew. No, this test was not for God's benefit. This test was for Abraham's benefit. This test was to teach Abraham certain things. And this becomes very important as we interpret the passage because there are many things, there are many who have misinterpreted and misapplied this passage. But we have a clue from the very structure of the passage, the very fact that in the opening verses, God tells us 
he pulls back the curtain, as it will, and says, I'm testing Abraham. The narrator of Genesis tells us this. Abraham doesn't know this. God didn't tell Abraham, I'm testing you. But he tells us, in order that we may rightly interpret the the story, we learn that this is about a test. And so let's consider this afternoon, this test together under the themes, God's promises reconfirmed through a perplexing text. The first part of the sermon, I'm going to take a few minutes to deal with some common misinterpretations of this passage. There are many out there who misunderstand or misapply this, pra- this, this passage, and it's probably helpful to, before we get into the heart of our theme, to deal with a few of those, and then we will take a look at the elements of the test, and finally we'll take a look at the results of the test. There are several misinterpretations, three in particular, that I want to draw your attention to. The first is one that is probably more prevalent in in liberal as opposed to conservative or orthodox reform circles, and yet you can read many commentaries and many approaches to this passage that focus on this misapplication. And it's a misapplication that frames the entire passage as a debate about child sacrifice. Look, says some, what we have in this passage is God asking Abraham to sacrifice his child. And certainly that would appear to be a valid read of the passage. So they say one of two things must be true. Either this isn't real history and this is a myth, this is a story out of which we have to come with some other interpretations because after all God the Christian God doesn't demand sacrifices of children he thinks that's abhorrent or if it is true the Christian God is not a God worthy of being worshipped the Christian God is a tyrant a Christian God is a cruel God asking for child sacrifice Logically, they say you are forced to one of those two conclusions. Well, how do we answer that? Well, it is important for us to understand the very nature of this passage, and that's why I think there is significance to the fact that the author of the book of Hebrews tells us right in the first verse that God is testing Abraham. And the key lesson for us to take away from this is the role of that text in the life of faith of the patriarch Abraham. The key to the story is that Abraham is confronted with a problem he cannot solve. As we will see, the test is how he responds to that particular challenge. And so to start putting all the emphasis on the details of that test which, as we will see in a few moments, even Abraham understood throughout, would not fully be carried out. Abraham always believed by faith that he was going to come back with Isaac. He didn't understand how. We'll look at that in a few minutes. But throughout, the text is very clear. Abraham believes that God is going to protect Isaac one way or the other. And so to focus on the issue of child sacrifice because it's in the passage, 
is to lead ourselves astray and to misinterpret the point of the entire passage. There's a second very common misinterpretation, and that one comes a little closer to home. In fact, yesterday I listened to a couple of sermons on sermon audio, and Reformed pastors were using this method of interpretation as well. And what it does is essentially take this out of its historical context and presents the entire passage as if it is a lesson about Christ. And one pastor I listened to yesterday, in my view, went to an extreme. He focused on the fact that Isaac was Abraham's only son, just like Jesus was God's only son. That they were named by God and called to be burnt offerings. He spent some time on the fact that Isaac had to carry the wood, just like Jesus had to carry the cross. And he even went so far as to say the two men who were the two servants who were being left behind were like the two thieves on either side of the cross. Well, I would argue that that misunderstands the reason this passage is in the Bible. Yes, as we will see, there is a certain element of foreshadowing that comes here to the fact that on this very mountain, Mount Moriah, is the mount on which Jerusalem, just outside of Jerusalem, is the mountain on which the sacrifice is going to take place of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is not presented to us as a metaphor, as a foreshadowing of what Christ has done. This is real history applied to a real man, Abraham, in his own journey of faith. And God is not playing with Abraham here as if he says, well, I need to make you a little bit of an example so I have a story in the Bible to tell Christians centuries down the road. No, this is a real test of Abraham and we need to understand it in its historical context. This is history. Neither Abraham, nor Isaac, nor Jacob, nor any leader in the church history or any leader in the church today is indispensable. God uses them in history to focus on Christ and their role in leading to the ultimate central point of history. And Isaac, rather than being a type of Christ, is someone who is as in need of Christ as you and I are. You see, Isaac here is not the sacrifice. The point of the story is that Isaac needs the sacrifice. Isaac needs the ram, but ultimately Isaac needs the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to look at this as a metaphor, if you will, and to try to pull all the details out is, I suggest, to misunderstand the reason for the passage. Well, thirdly, the mistake sometimes is made by some in interpreting this is dealing with this as if all of history depends on this text, this test. And basically you can read the passage and you could ask yourself, okay, what would have happened if Abraham had not followed through? What would have happened if Abraham, having heard this command of God to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, had come up with an objection or became scared, would all of history fallen? Well, you see, the passage makes very clear 
that the outcome of this is not uncertain. Number one, God himself is carrying out his plan here also through Abraham. It is is the work of God who works faith through his people. And yes, they have to in faith respond, and we'll look at that. But we need to emphasize this is about the promise of God being fulfilled. Abraham knew and understood that it was through Isaac that God's promise was going to be fulfilled. You remember a couple sermons back. God came to him and said, you're going to have a son. And Abraham says to God, I know, I already have him. He's Ishmael. God said, no, no, no. Yes, Ishmael is your son, and he's going to be blessed. But Isaac, Isaac is the child of promise. Abraham knows that. He remembers that. And that's why even through the test, in verse 5, he goes with the servants. And did you notice what he says when they leave, Isaac and him leave the servants behind? We will come back. Even in Abraham's mind, there is no question that Isaac is coming back with him. Why? Because Isaac is the child of promise. When Isaac says, where's the lamb? What does Abraham say to his son? God will supply the lamb. Abraham knows He doesn't know how the story's going to end. He doesn't know how he's going to get there, but he does know how it's going to end. It's going to end with him going home with Isaac. This is not a question of doubt. Now we have the blessing not only of, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, having the divinely inspired author of Genesis pull back the curtain, so to speak. We also have the blessing of the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11, 17, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. You see, throughout the whole story, Abraham knows that one way or the other, God is going to be true to his promises and carry that through. And so, to frame this entire thing as if history and the gospel rests in the balance based on Abraham's decision, is indeed to take this out of its full biblical context. Well, then, those are a few approaches that you can find, and I I thought it necessary because in preparing for this sermon, it was striking to me how many Bible commentaries, even from sources that you would expect to be reliable, have quite different interpretations and framings of this particular passage. And so, obviously having looked a little bit at how not to interpret it, let's focus a little more closely now on the passage itself and the test that is there. What are the elements of the test that Abraham has? I suspect that some might say the test, when you read this, the test for Abraham is whether or not he will obey God. And indeed, as God comes to him and challenges him to say, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him for me as a sacri- to me as a sacrifice, Abraham himself, when receiving this, must have been dumbfounded, having received this request of God. This request makes no sense. 
in light of everything that God has told him to date and who God has revealed himself to be to Abraham. And so the very first part of the test that Abraham faces is a rational test, a test in his mind. Abraham has to come to the grips that God's word to him is asking something of him that seems inconsistent with words that God has previously given to him. For decades now, God has reminded Abraham of his promises. We have followed the journey, we have focused on this son that was to be born, Isaac. Now what is remarkable here is that the passage does not allow us at all insight into what Abraham is thinking. You'll notice that in the opening verses, we have the explanation, this is a test. We have the call of God to Abraham, and what comes next? Abraham rose up early, and he went and he obeyed. We are not told what Abraham thought. The obedience of going to Mount Moriah, as we learn from the passage, it's about a three days journey. I want to remind you at this time that Abraham's an old man, probably somewhere around 130, 140 years old. He's an old man. And he picks the wood up and he goes on this three day journey with his two servants and his son. There they go, the four of them. And I don't think we have to conclude from the passage that they walked those three days in entire silence. I would imagine they would have had the small talk and all of the rest that would have been expected. At the same time, from the passage, I think it is reasonable to conclude that they did not talk about the purpose for their journey. Abraham did not share with Isaac, nor with the two servants, what it was that God had asked him to do. How do we know that? Well, Isaac's question. Where's the lamb? If Isaac would have known that he was to be the sacrifice, that question would not have risen up. And so we need to picture Abraham, the old man, together with Isaac, his son, and the two servants, going down on this three-day journey. We are left to imagine what is going on in Abraham's mind. But it would be unreasonable not to conclude that there is a wrestling with God that happens on the part of this patriarch Abraham. This patriarch who's been the friend of God, who just a few chapters ago, God came and revealed himself and his plans for Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham negotiated with God. Had very bold and very direct conversations with God. And here... God comes with his command and he leaves Abraham. Doesn't explain it. Abraham is left with the contradiction of what God appears to be demanding of him in conflict with what God has promised him. And how do we add those two up? Well, we don't know how Abraham gets there. I don't think there's any... We have to be careful when we argue from the silence of Scripture, but I don't think there's any evidence in the passage to suggest that Abraham came to Mount Moriah having it all figured out. No, Abraham 
understood the contradiction, the perplexing challenge that God had put before him. But he went in the way of obedience. He had faith. We will come back. God will provide the lamb. God is going to be true to his promises. We can be sure of that. But how will it work out? What am I stepping into? What is the next step on the road? Abraham's faith, his rational, his cognitive ability to understand how the word of God comes together is being tested. And indeed, does not God sometimes test his own people? Is it not true, child of God, that sometimes you've been there, sometimes I've been there? Where sometimes God's ways and God's word that seems to put a clear path in front of us of obedience doesn't make sense to us. We can't add it all up. But you see, God doesn't owe us an explanation. We heard something of that this morning with Nebuchadnezzar as well, didn't we? God is in the throne. He doesn't have to answer us. Oh, let's not think for a moment that God is frivolous or uncaring in doing this. As we'll see in a moment, he has his purposes. He's instructing Abraham through this test. He's teaching him. He's using it. But Abraham doesn't fully understand that. And so there is a cognitive element to this test. There's a second element of this test that's certainly emphasized in the text. Verse 2, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Even in English, we get a sense of that. But in Hebrew especially, there are, there are four emphasis of Isaac sort of piled on each other here. Your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. God highlights the fact that Abraham loves Isaac. Now we also know from the last chapter that Abraham had a very close relationship with his son Ishmael as well. Was this because Abraham's personality was particularly affectionate? That he had a close relationship? All fathers have some relationship with their sons, but some have more relationship than others, depending on personality. Did Abraham just happen to be the sort of personality that had deep, emotional, loving relationships with his sons, Ishmael and, and Isaac? Perhaps. But I think there's more at play here. Because in God emphasizing this fact of love, between Abraham and Isaac, he's challenging Abraham to think about his love for Isaac in the context of his love for God. He's challenging Abraham to say, look at your love for your son. How does that compare with your love for me? What has your love for Isaac taught you about how I love you? And how you ought to love me. Indeed, we have seen Abraham two sermons ago as the friend of God in, a, in an intimate relationship with him. And yet, throughout the passage over these, over these 40 or so years that we have covered, there is a sense in which 
God has revealed himself as an omnipotent, the El Shaddai, the Almighty One, the El Odom, the God who continues. But there's a distance. And Abraham's response has been one of obedience. God has given him the promises and he has obeyed. And Abram has had to learn many things about that. We've seen that in past sermons. But God has said to Abraham, follow me and I will give you a son, I will give you a land, and I will bless the nations through you. The three elements of the covenant that we've seen, this is now the seventh time that God is speaking directly to Abraham with these elements. And now Abraham is being challenged by God to say, don't just follow me because I've promised you blessings. I want to test whether you're following me because you love me. He's being forced to reflect on the sacrificial nature of love. The willingness to give of yourself, not just to receive the benefits, but to give of yourself. It's not just about whether or not he took God at his word and believed his promises. This text goes beyond the mind to the affections. At the core of this test, one of the key test questions here is Abraham, do you love me? So you see the test is assessing Abraham's mind his understanding, highlighting the fact that God's commands sometimes are perplexing and beyond our ways and we don't always understand them. They're a test of love. But thirdly, they're also a test of the will. Are you willing to obey? Are you willing to follow me even when it doesn't seem to make sense? Two weeks ago, we had the sermon in our Daniel series on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel 3. And you'll remember they came, having refused to bow down before the image, and they came to Nebuchadnezzar. And after he threatened them to throw them in the fiery furnace, what did they say? Daniel 3, our God who we serve is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us. But even if he does not, we will worship him. You see, they had submitted their will. And while they had the expectation of blessing, they had determined and resolved they were going to obey him, whether or not the blessing worked out in the way they expected it or not. No, you see, the test of obedience is submission. It's a trust in the person of God. You see, the test of faith is not only what we believe and who we love, but are we ready to submit? I was reflecting and praying over this over the course of the last week. Something struck me. I've been at the bedside of parents who have died. I've seen God's grace poured out 
in which there was total peace and contentment. And God gave the grace to totally submit and to give up this life. And that's a wonderful grace. Many of you have had that same experience. Those are golden blessings and grace. But you know, there is an element in which there is a refuge-seeking grace that takes place there, but the person has no choice. To some extent, they know they are going to die. And so they cast their hope, they cast their care about God. Who else? Quoting Peter and the disciples, where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But you know, sometimes it may be harder to submit when we think we have agency. When God asks us to submit to things in which we think we still have control and we can make different choices. And is this maybe the lesson that Abraham has to learn here? Submission to God simply doesn't mean following God when there is no other choice. Submission to God is not simply casting your cares upon Him. It is also trust that even in circumstances that we don't understand, even in challenges that we don't fully understand, God is reliable. And what God asks us, something that we are not keen to give, are we able to submit? And are we ready to submit? Yes, Abram's test was a difficult test. With at least three core questions at the heart of it. Do you believe me? Do you love me? Are you ready to submit to me? All embodied in this request, take your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him. Well, how did Abraham fare in his test? We consider this in our final point, the results of the test. There are several observations I want to make here, and I'm going to mention them all. We don't have time to go in great detail. First of all, I want you to see Going back to our original thing, why do you have a test? You have a test to to learn what you know. Well, God already knew that answer. Abraham is learning as a result of this, but God already knew. No, the more significant purpose of this test is that Abraham might grow through this all. And so we see, first of all, there are lessons from taking the test itself, learning from the journey. We've already reflected on the fact that for three days Abraham traveled with Isaac and the two servants. And there is no evidence that God, I am sure that many times in those three days the silent prayer went from Abraham's heart, why, O God? Help me understand. Make your way plain to me. And there is no evidence that God immediately answered that prayer. And yet Abraham proceeded. Where did he find the strength to do so? Again, we need to be careful of of exegeting from the silence of Scripture, but we also can interpret Genesis 22 in light of the entire 
surrounding passages that we have been considering. What, has been, what have we noticed as Abraham has proceeded each time to the next step of the journey? We have noticed that God comes with a new name. Remember in Genesis 11? He came as Adonai, the name that would have been used as God. Not just for Jehovah God, but for any God. And this moon worshiper in Ur of the Chaldees, worshiping all sorts of gods, hears from Adonai, a new God that he hadn't heard from before. And this God says, come, follow me. I'll give you a land. I'll make you a great nation. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And Abraham follows. And he follows Adonai. And we saw that he didn't always follow him faithfully, didn't he? got to the land of Canaan, and what happens? A famine comes, and does he continue to trust God? No, he packs up and he goes to Egypt. Runs into difficulties there. There are challenges with lots. There are challenges with foreign kings and Melchizedek. You remember that incident? Then God comes again and reconfirms the covenant. You remember that? Genesis 17. Abraham has lived for all these years with the name Father of many, but he's childless. And God comes with a new name and he says, I'm El Shaddai. I'm the Almighty One. And I'm going to change your name too. You're going to become the Father of many. And Abram obeys, circumcises his household. What happens? Very shortly after, him and Sarah lose confidence in God and decide to take things into their own hands. Hey, Abram goes into Hagar, Ishmael's born. And Abraham is convinced he has the child of the promise. He even tells God that in Genesis 17. God says, no, Isaac's going to be your child of promise. A year from now, you're going to have Isaac. <clears throat> As we saw last time, he still isn't all that faithful, is he? Still packs up and goes to Gerar. Still gives his wife away as his half-sister and risks it all. God saves him again and comes back again with a new name. I'm El Odin. I'm the eternal one. I wonder as Abraham walked these three days whether or not he did not recount in his head the stories of God's promises and seeing the fact that through his life he has been so unfaithful. He's had the promises and almost every time he received the promises he threw them away in terms of some self determined process and every time God comes back I wonder I wonder if as Abraham journeys and deals with all of these things in his heart and in his soul it is not reflection on the character of God and his faithfulness in times past that gives him the strength 
also to carry through in the present. Child of God, <clears throat> is this not true to your own experience as well? Well, there come times when God lays on our path challenges we don't know the answers to. We study God's Word and we ask for clarity and the doors of heaven seem to be closed to our prayers. And the test seems to be very real, almost inhumanly real, like Abram's being asked to give his son. And there's one side of us that wants to say, God, you're so unfair putting this on the path of Abraham. But no, God's teaching Abraham. He's teaching us through these things that he is the faithful one, he is reliable. And indeed, he gives Abraham strength, the old man, to walk these three days, to go and set his face on Mount Moriah. Oh, indeed, it was a lesson through the journey, but it's also a lesson through obedience. Verse 8, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. When the lamb is there, what does God, Abraham name this place? The Lord will provide, in Hebrew, Jehovah Jireh. A new name is given, is introduced here. God gives him, introduces himself with a new name, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Let's just detour for a very quick grammar lesson on the word Jireh. It's a rough Hebrew equivalent to the English word see. I looked up in my dictionary the other day. The word see in English has lots of meanings. The dictionary I consulted had 20 of them. You can see with your eyes, just like I see your cars right out in front of you, and you see me standing here. But seeing also can mean perceiving. I didn't see the purpose of this. Oh, now I see what you mean. It's a word that can mean perceive. It also can mean seeing someone off. I will see you to the door. I will see you off at the airport. It also can refer to a relationship. A young man and a young woman begin seeing each other. We understand that has relationship implications. And so we can go on. There are 20 English definitions of see. What is interesting is the Hebrew word gyra, which is translated see here, has act actually occurs about 1,700 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. And it is translated 30 different ways in the New King James Version. And in this passage, the word gyra in Hebrew comes through several times with different meanings. In verse 4, Abraham saw Mount Moriah afar off. Verse 8, God will provide. Verse 13, Abraham looked and saw the lamb in the bush. Verse 14, the Lord will provide. In the mount of the Lord it will be provided. And in the same way as we need to be careful when we use the English word see, not to too narrowly define it, 
we need to do the same with the Hebrew word gyra, which is translated in this passage. And it becomes indeed the central theme of this passage. As Abraham names this mountain, the Lord will provide. Oh, you see the emphasis, the lesson, the result of this test. Abram's being tested, remember, on his will, on his love, and on his, on his submission. And his answer to the test is, the Lord will provide. And how did he come to that? He came to that simply by obedience and trusting in God. And indeed, God did provide. The lamb was there. There are six items, aspects of his obedience that I just am going to mention to you that come through in this passage. First of all, note the nature of his obedience. It was immediate. Verse 3, God comes to him. And in verse 3, early the next morning. Abraham didn't stop and say, well, we've got a challenge here we don't fully understand. Let's take the time to think about it and make sure we fully understand this before... No. God called him. He obeyed. Immediately. Secondly, he was attentive. In both verse 1 and verse 11, we have God calling him, but he didn't ignore the call. He didn't say, wait for a more convenient time. No, both times he's immediately attentive to the call of God. Thirdly, we see that this faith is a persevering faith. I've already highlighted Abraham's an old man. It's a three-day journey. There's wood, there's fire to carry. But Abraham doesn't moan and groan about what a tough assignment it is. He perseveres. He's sustained. Fourthly, it's a worshipful obedience. When you take a look at the assignment of going to offer the sacrifice of your own son, an assignment you really don't understand, you would not think the first thing you're going to say is, I'm going to worship God. But when Abraham leaves the two men behind, what does he say to them? You stay here. Isaac and I are going to worship Do you and I take on our obedience, the calls of God in our life that we don't fully understand or we don't fully care for? Do we take it on with a worshipful spirit as Abraham does? Fifthly, notice the fact that it's a confident or a settled obedience. There's no panic in Abraham's explanation to the servants or to Isaac. Even though Abraham does not understand everything that's going on, he proceeds in the obedience of faith. And finally, it's a contagious obedience. How do we know that? Well, we're not told the details, but when we come to the top of Mount Moriah, what happens? Abraham they put, and Isaac put the stones together, put the wood together. And the next thing we know, Isaac is laying bound on the altar. How did Isaac get there? Isaac is a man in his teens or 20s in all likelihood. Abraham's an old man of 145. 
If it came down to a wrestling match between the two, we both know who would win. It clearly didn't. Abraham is able to communicate to Isaac his faith in God that God would provide such that Isaac himself willingly puts himself on the altar and is bound. Even to the point where Abraham has the knife in his hand and it would appear, humanly speaking, is ready to sacrifice his son. Oh, there are many lessons learned through this test process. But now it's time for the results of the test. The exam is over. And now the results are handed out. And what is the result of the test? God speaks out. Abraham, Abraham, now I know that you fear God. Oh, he knew it all along, didn't he? He was an omniscient God. God didn't need to figure it out. God wasn't waiting with anticipation for the result. But we have in this Abraham now knowing something more of the fear of God than he did when we started the passage. Abraham has learned through this test something of what obeying and following God is. And God proceeds to put his stamp of approval and his reward on the faith of Abraham. Verse 15, by myself I have sworn because you've done this thing. God can appeal to no higher than himself. So almighty God, Jehovah himself, says I've sworn by myself. And what does he do? He repeats the promises. There's nothing that follows in the verses that hasn't been heard before, although there is a new descriptor to the offspring. This is the first time we are told that your seed is going to be like the sand of the seas and the stars of heaven. Yes, Abraham has passed this test. And we read that Abraham and Isaac take the lamb They worship God and they go down, they meet their men, the servants, and they go back to Beersheba. The chapter ends with four verses that seem a little strange. And part of this, I struggled whether or not to deal with this now or in our next sermon. We have two more sermons on the life of Abraham. In our next sermon, we're going to see Abraham dealing with the everyday affairs of life. Sarah is going to die. He's going to have to buy a tomb. Isaac needs a wife. So he's going to be married. So we're going to see the promises of God continue to be carried out in the life of Abraham as he goes from the high of Mount Moriah to the everyday issues of life and see that there too he needs God's promises. He needs Jehovah Jireh to deal with the death of Sarah as much as he needs Jehovah Jireh to provide the lamb for the sacrifice. And then in our final sermon, we're going to see Abraham on his own deathbed, transported to glory, recipient of the promise, and yet looking forward to the promise, knowing that it wasn't fully fulfilled in the life of Abraham, but looking forward to that eternal promise. 
As we look at these four verses at the end in which Abraham receives word that his brother has received great many children, there are two very different streams of interpretation that come. Some highlight this as a continuation of Mount Moriah and the Lord's provision, noting the fact that Rebekah is named here who will be the wife of Isaac, as we will learn from subsequent chapters. Abraham doesn't know that. And so that, that line of interpretation would see this as a reconfirmation of what has just happened. There are others who say, no, this is a continuation of the test. Abraham is being reminded that he still only has Isaac and his brother has all sorts of kids and grandkids. I don't think we need to settle that here. What is clear as we summarize in conclusion, it's easy to see this story as God's test. And isn't it true that sometimes the story of God's test, even as we think of it, how do we know that we love God? Well, do we read our Bibles? Do we pray? Do we go to church? Do we obey the Ten Commandments? Do we do all of these things? Did Abraham offer up his son Isaac? No, those are consequences. They aren't at the heart of the test. To think of the test as a test of whether or not Abraham would offer up Isaac is to misunderstand the test. The test is whether or not Abraham will submit to God and believe in his provision and trust in his provision. The test is whether or not we depend only on God and his provision of righteousness and of salvation and not on ourselves. The answer to the test God will provide and Abraham passed the test. Before he climbed Mount Moriah, he knew in faith God would provide a lamb. And when the knife is raised, the voice comes from the thicket and God answers, Jehovah Jireh, I will provide. What does that mean for us? Well, the call this afternoon is exactly the same. If you're an unbeliever this afternoon listening to this word but cannot say that your only trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the message is exactly the same. Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. There is no other way for you to be saved. Submit to the gospel call of faith and repentance. Not your good works, not your prayer, not your obedience, but God's sovereign provision gives us hope. And to believers facing the test of life, perhaps in a very pronounced, difficult way, or perhaps in a more subtle way, whether in our personal life or our life as a congregation, whether we're facing the tests of prosperity or the tests of pandemic, whether your current challenge has you tempted to think that you can do great things for God all by yourself, or whether your current stage is such that you feel totally helpless and how in the world can I do anything, the message this afternoon is the same. Yes, your tests are real and challenging. Let's not minimize the difficulty that Abraham experienced during this test. It was a very difficult test. The test is not passed by what you do, but by what God has done. 
Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. God has provided the lamb. Whether it's the forgiveness of sins or the grace that gives you strength to live each day, God's provision more than answers the questions on your test. Jesus, the Lamb of God, has come. God and man have been reconciled. There's no further need for sacrifice. Jehovah Jireh, God provides. We submit. God's promises are fulfilled. Let's pray together. Lord, we come having opened a difficult passage of your word and having sought to struggle with the test that Abraham was given. Lord, we pray that you'll work with your Holy Spirit and also apply that message of that word to each of us as we have need. Oh Lord, we pray that we may trust totally in your provisions, knowing that indeed you are an almighty and gracious God that provides for us in all of our needs. Lord, we thank you for this time of worship. Bless us also as we give of your uh, gifts, service to you and your kingdom. Be with us as we enter into a new week. We grant that it all may be to your honor and glory. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.